Hey everybody, this is Trail Kreitzer. This is the Game Trail Podcast. Uh, welcome aboard. Uh, I'm your host. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I genuinely appreciate the feedback that you guys have submitted. Uh, I would love it if you continue to submit feedback. Let me know what you're liking, not liking, if you're having issues with sound. Uh, we recently got some feedback that maybe the uh, headphones weren't working right to left. So uh, hopefully that's been fixed. If not, shoot me a, a message, drop me some feedback, let me know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly new at this podcasting thing on my own, so I'm trying to make it work. Uh, but welcome to the Game Trail Podcast. Uh, this is going to be a solo episode. Uh, kind of my plan moving forward is to do an episode uh, every other week where it's just on my own uh, and then have a guest in the off weeks. And I think the reason I'm going to do that is one is I just, as I'm out hunting, as I'm out shooting my bow in the morning, uh, you know, working out, uh, I just have thoughts, ideas, uh, lessons that I've learned that I want to pass on. And hopefully, you know, somebody will get some use uh, out of those and be able to, you know, be that much more effective uh, in the field themselves. So uh, this week, like I said, it's going to be a solo podcast. Um, I want to talk about uh, my recent over-the-counter elk hunt in Colorado. Kind of want to do a recap. I want to hit on some lessons that I learned and you know, these lessons, they, they aren't necessarily groundbreaking. Some of them are just very simple things that, you know, I should have been doing or I should be aware of at this stage in the game uh, as far as hunting goes for me. Uh, but they're just little things. Um, and they're little things that matter, though. And like I've said in previous uh, podcast, I really think it's the little things that stack up and uh, ultimately make you a better hunter as a whole. I really still buy into that, the devil's in the details. Um so I'm going to share some of those. I'm also going to share at the end of the podcast, maybe eight to 10 uh, gear items that I really liked. Some of them I've used in the past. They've been included in my gear list. Some of them are going to be new, uh, but I just wanted to highlight some pieces that I really liked uh, during the month of September. Um, I'm recording this on October 1st, so it's sad that we have to say goodbye to September. September is hands down my very favorite month of the year. Uh, it's a no brainer why I absolutely love hearing bugle and bull elk you know, hunting deer uh, in the or in velvet with a bow. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sad to see uh, September go. So until next sep- sep- September, um, you know, I'll be trying to get my stuff dialed in, trying to be ready and, you know, get a chance to do it again next year, make plans for, you know, obtaining permits, getting my equipment in order, um, getting my mind right, uh, getting my physical fitness to a level that I needed to be, and really just get get ready to go again next year. But I am sad to see September go. Uh, before I jump into the episode, I did want to hit a couple of business items, one of them being uh, promo code. So promo code you can use uh, is GameTrail, that's G-A-M-E-T-R-A-I-L. You can use that promo when you sign up for a Go Hunt Insider account. Uh, now's a great time to start doing some research. Um, it's hard to believe, but you know, here in a couple months, you'll have that uh, Idaho over-the-counter option open up. I've still yet to see if they're making any changes to that. So right now, my understanding is the plan is still to use that over-the-counter option with the you know the line, the queue that they'll place you in. Now's a great time to to research. I saw a lot of really nice bulls come out of Idaho already. Um, you know, maps is another great thing you can dive in. There's still a lot of hunting to do. Hopefully you guys have got some, you know, rifle tags that are still yet to come. And then of course, you know, the whitetail rut, right? November, that's prime time for you guys. 
Um, so there's still a, a good a good portion of time to be able to use maps in the field and then also use your, your GoHunt Insider account. Uh, if you use that promo code GAMETRAIL when you sign up for a Insider account, we're going to give you 50 points, which is $50 back into the GoHunt gear shop. You can use that to buy or towards the purchase of any gear that you want, including maybe some of the items that I'm going to touch on at the end of the episode. If you sign up for a Go Hunt Explorer membership, which is the maps portion of the platform, uh, you're going to get 20 points back. So that's $20 that you can use towards the purchase of gear in the shop. So like I said, use that promo code Game Trail. Sign up for either an Insider account or a Go Hunt uh, Explorer account, which is the maps portion of the platform. Uh, the other thing I wanted to note is uh, I have a sponsor. Matthews Archery is a sponsor of the podcast. Uh, I cannot thank those guys enough for you know being willing to sponsor the podcast. Um, relatively new podcast, so you know it was a chance that they took on me and on the podcast itself just to jump in and offer sponsorship. Um, one of my very simplest pleasures in life is getting out every day and shooting my bow. I got up and shot probably 100 arrows this morning at the range shoot my Matthews bow and I just absolutely love that thing. I love the product. Uh, I really like the company. I think they continue to push and innovate and uh, without saying a whole lot, you know, those guys are continuing to push the envelope. They produce a phenomenal product. Um, I can't wait for the new year and uh, you know, they make a a great product. So thanks to those guys, Matthews Archer, I have a ton of confidence in their bows and, and I appreciate them so much for, for sponsoring the podcast. So with that, I'm going to jump in and just dive into the episode, kind of some things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Like I said, I wanted to recap my elk hunt, which is an over-the-counter elk hunt that I did in Colorado uh, this past week. Uh, It was actually two weeks ago at this time. Time flies. Um, Anyway, so over-the-counter elk in Colorado, still a phenomenal opportunity. Um, I rolled into Grand Junction Cabela's. I think I was probably one of the first customers there when the doors opened. I walked in. You know, I had about 780 bucks in my pocket, uh, not so much in my pocket in cash, but just on my debit card and within minutes. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a tag in my pocket. So that's still an opportunity that's available to everyone at this stage in the game. You can literally put together a hunt with your Go Hunt Insider account using your maps portion of the platform, plan a hunt. You can show up in Colorado, buy a tag, and go hunting. Um, so my plan for this hunt was to meet up with my buddy, Chris Neville, who you guys are probably familiar with. Uh, we were also going to be joined by Chris's brother, Josh, uh, Josh had flown in from California. He's living out there. So the three of us were going to kind of link up, uh, backpack into an area and hunt an area that we had hunted before and had success in. Um, you know, we showed up, I met those guys. The plan was is to jump in one vehicle because the road going up to the trailhead was actually pretty rough. Uh, I've got a little tiny forerunner with a really narrow wheelbase. Um, you know, that thing's like a glorified side-by-side, if you will. It'll, it's got air conditioning and a radio, but beyond that, I mean, it'll basically go anywhere. Um, so we linked up, uh, parked his truck, got out, uh, and one of the first questions I think he asked me was, hey, did you bring an archery target? And I hadn't. Um, you know, usually I do bring an archery target and I'll shoot a few arrows. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just got my equipment. I'm excited to go. And I think that probably happens for a lot of us, whether we're traveling to a hunt via airplane, we've flown and, and got our equipment there. Maybe we didn't bring a target or, you know, we've driven someplace and, you know, we get our bow out and we're just excited. We're excited to hit the trail. Uh, I know that for me, that very first evening, I was really excited to get into the area, hopefully hear some bugles and pinpoint some bulls uh, for that next morning's hunt. 
And, uh, you know, I think that's a step that we probably skip. And I would say that that's kind of a, a lesson that I learned, uh, the hard way, if you will, this year. Um, you know, he pulled out a target. Chris had had the foresight to bring a target. And, you know, he suggested, I think we should shoot some arrows just to verify pens. Um, you know, me being a, a bit of a dummy and maybe a little bit arrogant at that point, I was like, I'm just going to step back to, you know, 50, 60, check those pens, make sure I'm good to go. So I think I stepped back to 50 yards. My first arrow uh, went maybe an inch, two inches over this little Morel uh, dice target, the small size, completely missed the target. And, you know, I was perplexed. I thought that was weird. You know, the shot felt pretty good. Uh, pull back my second arrow, the exact same spot. Goes right over the top of the target. Completely miss it. And uh, at that point, I'm starting to get that pit in my stomach. I'm a little bit panicked. And I'm thinking, you know, what the heck? Uh, decide to go get a couple more arrows uh, and move in closer. So moved in closer. Shot 20 yards. That one seemed okay. 30 yards seemed okay. Um, you know, shot my 40 yard. It might have been a smidge high. I thought, man, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I just pulled those first two arrows at 50. Um, step back to 50, right over the top of the target. Um, at that point, I'm I'm pretty stressed, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, you don't ever want to show up to a hunt and not have your equipment absolutely, totally verified. Um, the, the point I would make here, the lesson that I learned is, uh, one, uh, I had switched to some new equipment. Um, I had shot that for a week prior to leaving on this hunt, and I felt pretty good when I left that my pins were verified, that they'd, I'd shot a man, that they were hitting where I wanted them to. Um, you know, in travel, I hadn't had my bow in a case. You know, there's the potential that maybe, you know, something had happened. Uh, although I don't necessarily think that's the case. Uh, the other issue is maybe potentially is you move up in elevation. I know that I've shot tack events in the past where I've sighted my bow in at a lower elevation here in my hometown where I live. I then have traveled to a tack event and I've shot a course where uh, you're shooting targets at maybe 10,500, you know, 11,000 feet. And I have noticed at times that maybe my uh, yardages run a few yards hot. Um, that could be potentially the issue. Maybe that thinner air uh, is as such that you're just, your impact points are kind of moving up. Um, the other issue could have been potentially, which is I actually think this is probably it, is that I probably just hadn't put enough time in with that new equipment to make absolutely certain that my arrows were hitting behind each individual pin, um, which is a problem. Um, the other issue that I experienced was that I'd only brought eight arrows with me on my hunt. So I had five arrows, which were, you know, my starting five with broadheads. I had spun those. I knew that they were straight. I knew that they were all consistent in weight. I had those in my quiver ready to go. Uh, I brought three other arrows just to keep in the truck in case something had happened. I had three other broadheads. Uh, but with my first misses, I'd actually lost two arrows of the three. Like I could not find them. I looked for them for quite a while. I couldn't find two of the arrows. So now essentially at that point, I'm down to my starting five, if you will, and one backup, um, which is should not be the case. So lesson learned, take plenty of arrows with you on your hunt. And it's not necessarily that you may end up having to shoot a bunch of arrows and animals in the field. Hopefully that's not the case. Uh, the issue might be that maybe in verifying your arrows, maybe something happens like it did for me and you lose a couple um, and you never want to have that happen. So I know in the future for me, I'll definitely be traveling with at least a dozen arrows, uh, backup broadheads, just in case something like this happens. Uh, 
ultimately what we decided to do, like I said, I was so frustrated and I did not want to leave that trailhead without, uh, you know, knowing for sure that my pins were hitting uh, where I wanted them to. Uh, what I decided to do was to drive up to the trailhead and I kicked those guys out and I said, you know, there's no, no need for you to stick around for my stupidity. Uh, why don't you guys take off backpack in and I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Uh, I spent probably another two hours at the trailhead with that block target. Uh, sighting in each one of my pens and my sight tape again uh, with one arrow, walking back and forth, walking back and forth, and just making sure that I executed good shots and that each one of my pens was verified before I left. Um, and, you know, as I think back on this, if you've ever missed a shot in the field, if you've ever made a bad hit on an animal, um, I think we always assume that it was probably us in the moment. Maybe we got excited, and I think in a lot of cases we probably know if it was us if we made a bad shot. Uh, but there also is the potential that maybe your equipment just wasn't dialed when you left. And I know that for me moving forward, there's absolutely no chance that that's going to happen because I will carry a target with me and I will verify each and each individual pin um, before I leave. Uh, I want to know for sure when I go into the field that I've got complete confidence in my setup. Uh, so that was a pretty tough lesson learned, but like I said, it didn't really cost me an animal because, uh, you know, I was able to verify it and get all my pins sighted in exactly and, you know, go out into the field with confidence. So uh, shot my pins in that night, uh, threw on my gear. I actually left the trailhead maybe just before dark and backpacked in, um, and I wasn't going to go to the same area that those guys were. They went to a ridge further than I was going to go to, and the plan was to hunt the morning on our own, and then link up potentially the next day. Um, there were a couple other trucks at the trailhead when we left. We'd seen some other guys that were actually heading in about the same time, so we knew that we were going to have some company back in this country. Uh, I got in that first uh, night late, uh, made camp, got up early the next morning, hiked down the end of the ridge, uh, which would put me in a good position where I could look for elk. I could also listen for bulls that are bugling and try to get uh, – you know, a bull talk in that morning. Um, I heard a lot of bugles that morning. Um, I didn't bugle myself. Uh, I'm fairly convinced that the bulk of those that I did hear were other hunters. So immediately I knew that there were other hunters in the area, probably more than there were um, at the trailhead. You know, when they went in, there was probably some guys that came from the other side or potentially, you know, below the drainage or down from the top of the drainage, uh, maybe in pack in uh, horse drop camps. Uh, but it was a little bit discouraging. You know, there's nothing like backpacking in seven, eight miles into an area and then starting to hear bugles that you're, you're fairly convinced are, are, are other hunters. Uh, in saying that, though, I mean, that's just the nature of the game. Uh, you can always expect people hunting with you in an over-the-counter unit in Colorado. It's just the way that it goes. Um, I, I talk to people all the time. I talk to a lot of hunters throughout the bulk of this hunt. You know, a lot of them were really discouraged about the number of people that they were seeing, the other hunters. Um, I would tell you that I can understand the, the discouragement. I totally get it. I myself had some situations later on in the hunt where I was discouraged by the amount of people in, in the areas. But ultimately, it's just like anything. You have to learn to adapt. You learn to have to figure out, um, you know, where those people are, how they're hunting, you know, their capabilities, if you will. And then learning uh, how to essentially uh, exploit your strengths and then, you know, potentially also use uh, where they're hunting and kind of the style that they're hunting to your advantage. Um, so like I said, that first morning, some bugles, 
maybe a couple bulls that I was convinced were bulls, but nothing really happening. Uh, I dove into a canyon that morning, midday, kind of get got down into it, and I checked a couple of wallows that we had uh, hunted in previous years. Those wallows didn't look like they'd been hit very hard, uh, which is also discouraging. You know, it just really didn't look like that there were that much use in the area. I wasn't seeing a ton of tracks. Uh, that evening I linked up with Chris and his brother, Josh, and we camped that night together. And I kind of talked to those guys about what they'd heard and seen. They'd had a similar experience. They thought they'd heard a couple bulls, uh, that morning, not much that evening. Um, so we were just kind of evaluating, filling out the area. It did look like where they were, there were not any other hunters. Didn't look like anybody had gone quite that far. So that was encouraging. Uh, We camped that night, got up early the next morning, and decided to uh, hike up onto the ridge. Didn't hear any bugles. Uh, We were hiking up onto the ridge, making our way, and we had a bull bugle, and he bugled maybe 100 yards from us. Um, I think a lot of times, especially when those bulls aren't really rutting, I think if you walk in close proximity to a bull and he hears footsteps, I think his assumption is that it's other elk or another bull, and a lot of times he'll just pipe off. Um, we started cow cow calling back and forth to him. He didn't really seem interested in a cow call. Uh, Josh bugled at him and he responded and, uh, another bull responded. So we had two bulls that were kind of bugling a little bit. Uh, neither of them seemed to have cows. They both seemed to be on their own and we worked those for a little while. It didn't really work out. Uh, Neville had, uh, crept down on the one bull. He said that he did get close enough to see it, but he didn't, you know, have a shooting lane. He said that that bull was a, a small six point. Um, so that kind of fizzled out midday. And, you know, that evening we tried to get on those bulls again. They were completely silent. We didn't have any response to them whatsoever. And I'm not really sure quite where they went. Uh, we camped that night. The next morning uh, kind of worked the same route, hiked down the ridge to see if we could get those same two bulls to respond. And they would respond. So we got a couple of response, but nothing, nothing really working. Um, you know, it was early. It felt like, although, you know, you're mid September, you would expect those bulls to be fired up, but it seemed to be that both of those bulls were completely on their own. Uh, we were seeing other elk across the drainage. And for the most part, we were seeing bulls by themselves. We were seeing groups of cows that were on their own, no bull. Uh, we did see one group of cows with a bull that was kind of bird dogging them. So, Um, you know, a hint of the rut, but it wasn't really the response that we were hoping for when we went into that area. We'd had, you know, a really good hunt in there before where the bulls were really vocal. There were a lot of cows and it seemed like we were constantly in elk and it just didn't seem to be the same scenario this year, which kind of goes to show you, um, you know, you can go back and you can hunt the same areas year after year. And, you know, sometimes they're really good. Sometimes it's just hit or miss sometimes for whatever reason, Maybe it's because there were muzzleloader hunters in there the week prior. Um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they're just, the elk just aren't in there. They're just not condensed into that area, that canyon that, that you're working. Um, so at that point, we decided, you know, best case, we ought to move. And I think that's a good lesson for me. It's a good lesson for a lot of people. I think, you know, you can hunt an area, you can have a bull or two, you know, there's a couple elk in the area. And I think sometimes, you know, we talk ourselves into saying, you know, it took us a lot of effort to get into this country. Let's just stick it out. Even though we know in the back of our minds that maybe the hunting's not going to be up to par or where we want it to be. Um, 
results. I would suggest to you, you know, be realistic with yourself, be realistic with your expectations. Uh, we really wanted an elk hunt where, you know, we were seeing elk, we were here in Bull's Bugle, you know, which everybody does, of course. Uh, but we, you know, decided no matter the effort, we would do it and we would pull stakes and we would go to a new area and check out a new area and hopefully get into more elk because uh, we did have three tags that we were hunting. So uh, we spent the rest of that day hiking back out. So that was, you know, another eight miles uphill, essentially back to the truck. Uh, we re- relocated to a new area. We didn't get into that new area until late that night. Uh, we decided to stay the night at the trailhead and get up early the next morning and backpack in, which is what we did. I think we got up about 3.30 in the morning the next day. We spent another two and a half, three hours that morning backpacking into a new area. Uh, we got out onto an overlook early that morning as the sun was starting to get light enough for, to see. And, you know, we immediately glass up some elk. And it looks to be like maybe there's a bull following some cows and they're going up into a drainage. Uh, we decided to dive into the bottom, cross the main drainage, go up the other side and kind of bird dog those elk and hopefully try to put together a plan for the afternoon. Um, that's another thing I I would add to this kind of a lesson I think I've known, but maybe I can pass it on and it'll help somebody. I think a lot of times you see elk in the distance and you think, well, I can't make anything happen on them this morning. There's no way. So you just kind of give up on them. Um, I think a lot of success that I've had in elk hunting has been due to just slow playing elk, putting yourself into position on an elk that you've seen early that morning, you've made the effort then to get close to that elk and just slow playing him, you know, trying to figure him out that afternoon. Where are those elk going to feed out? Um, You know, can you get on the following morning? So that's what we decided to do is we uh, made the loop over there. We got over onto a ridge that was opposite of where these elk had kind of fed up the drainage and some live timber. And as we were sitting there eating lunch excuse me, sitting there eating lunch. We're trying to put together a plan for the afternoon. Uh, We look across the canyon and we see a couple other guys and they've obviously seen these elk. Um, You know, there were a couple trucks at the trailhead at this new spot as well. So we knew we'd have some company and, you know, those guys were out ahead of us and they were kind of moving up the same hillside as those elk. And at that point we just decided, you know what, those elk are already being hunted. Those guys are out ahead of us. We're going to kind of look elsewhere. So we turned around, we started looking further into the unit and with some glassing, we started to pick up more herds of elk. Now these elk that we were starting to see were another two and a half, three, four miles into the unit, but we decided we're going to go for it. And it was a good move on our part in that it looked like as we moved down the drainage, Uh, Most of the people that were going into that unit, we could tell just by the foot tracks in the trail and the amount of sign that we were seeing on those main travel corridors, that people were pretty well stopping at that three to four mile range, which is understandable because an elk is a a giant animal. And if you're going to get an elk out of that country, you know, the uh, amount of effort, the further you go is going to be amplified. So it's completely understandable. But a lot of people look to be that they were kind of stopping at that three to four mile mark. And obviously there were elk in that country to hunt, so it makes sense that they were kind of stopping. But that yielded uh, good things for us and that we were willing to go that extra distance. So uh, that night we worked into an area where we'd seen some elk uh, in the afternoon. Um, We actually got onto a really big herd. There were probably 60 head. Uh, There were several satellite bulls. There was one herd bull. Uh, they were kind of working their way up this ridge and we were able to kind of undercut and come in parallel with them to get the wind right. 
and you know we limped in close to them we got to a point where we kind of run out of cover it didn't look like we could get in any closer based on the number of eyes and ears and noses in that herd so we tried doing some calling and we got some responses the elk were vocal and talking but we really didn't get anything that sounded or looked like it was going to commit and come back and check us out um, those elk eventually kind of went up and over the ridge and into the next canyon uh, it got dark. We decided to make camp that night and pick up that herd again the next morning. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people throughout this hunt as I was going in and out of the area. Um, I was successful. I'll touch on that here in a minute, but I ended up making multiple trips in and out to get my bull out. But I talked to a lot of people and they were trying to figure out how to hunt these elk. And most of the people that I ran into who had been hunting either, you know, this was their first year elk hunting or maybe I think uh, I talked to two guys that had been hunting five years. But other than that, they all were relatively new to archery elk hunting in that one to five year window. And a lot of guys within, you know, the first 30 seconds of talking to them, they would say, yeah, we're seeing elk, we're hearing elk, but we just, we don't know what the hell to do. We don't know what we're doing. And, you know, I feel like that a lot. I feel like that all the time on elk hunts myself. You know, every situation is different and it feels like when one doesn't work out, feels like you don't know what the hell you're doing. You're like, what am I doing here? I don't have a plan here. And I don't think it's uncommon to feel like that. Um, in saying that, I do feel like over the years, uh, I've figured out certain things that work for me. And one of them that kind of feeds into this is uh, that ability or the method that I've used uh, and you know, Chris has used uh, going forward is staying out there with the elk. So a lot of the guys I talked to were hiking back and forth uh, from a base camp, whether that was a two-man tent that they'd set up on a nice flat spot, you know, with close access to water, um, or a wall tent where they'd been packed into and, you know, they're going back to that wall tent every night. I think those are great, you know, those are good opportunities to get out and go hunting, but I really feel like so much of my success uh, over the years has really boiled down to that method of staying out there, staying mobile, uh, keeping my camp on my back at all times. So, you know, go to bed at night, first thing in the morning, everything goes back in my backpack and I'm packing a full pack the whole time. But it's it stinks to do that because you're obviously packing a 50-pound pack everywhere you go. I will say that I think I get really used to it within that first day and a half or so. I don't even really seem to notice the extra weight. But what it does allow me to do is it allows me to get close to elk and then pick elk up early the next day and then potentially be able to make a play on them that much quicker because I don't have to hike from a base camp out to where I've last seen the elk the night before. So um, that's a little tip, a little trick. I think it's worked really, really well for me over the years. I'm not saying that it's for everybody, but I will say for me, I definitely feel like it's added to my success in, in the elk woods. Um, so that night we went to bed, uh, got up the next morning, popped up on top of the ridge, and immediately we see a herd of elk in the very next canyon, which is where, where we'd seen him disappear the night before. Uh, there's a really nice six-point bull. He's got six cows with him. Uh, they're kind of working uh, just underneath the rim of the next canyon on the opposite side. And we're kind of evaluating it, figuring out what we want to do. We decided that we can use the topography to make a loop on them and come up the backside and wait for the afternoon thermals to be coming kind of up the ridge on their side and then potentially make a move on them mid-afternoon or early evening when, the, when that bull gets up to feed. 
So we decide that's what we're going to do. We make the loop around the backside. We get within probably two to 300 yards of where we'd last seen them kind of feeding. And we decide we're going to, you know, sit down, take a little break, eat some lunch, uh, do some glassing, and then just see if he pipes off, you know, midday and, and be able to make a play on him. Um, while we're sitting there eating lunch, taking a little bit of a nap, uh, we glass across the canyon and we see another herd of elk. And this has a nice six-point bull as well. He's got six cows. Uh, we watch him for a while. He actually runs another bull off uh, while we're watching him. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, I'm talking to Chris and Josh, and I say, you know, we've got two bulls. we got two herds of elk here. I think it makes probably the most sense at this point to divide and conquer. So I'm going to take one, you take the other. And, you know, let's just go see what, what can happen. Let's try to fill a tag. So, uh, gave those guys the opportunity to pick which, which elk, which bull they, they wanted to go after. Uh, they ultimately decided to go after the bull that was closest to us that we had seen that morning. And I decided that I was going to go after the bull across the canyon that we glassed up midday. So, uh, threw my backpack on again, full pack, threw my full backpack on all my camp and everything. Cause I didn't know if I'd be able to make it back to them that night. Um, and like I said, you know, I like to stay mobile. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen that night and I may be able to get on elk the next day that are further, you know, over in the unit. So, uh, I take off, drop down into the bottom. I'm using the topography. I'm able to make a loop around the hill and come up, uh, underneath them and then go up a Canyon and kind of pop up on a Ridge that is parallel with them. So I pop up on this little ridge. Uh, when I get to that point, I can look kind of across and I can see these elk bedded and they're bedded on like a little bit of a bench uh, uh, on the same plane, the same um, altitude, I guess you should, I could say on the, on the, um, on the hillside and uh, elevation, I should say on the hillside. And uh, I can see them. I've got the wind at this point blowing in my favor. It's blowing from them to me out of the south. Uh, and I'm watching these elk. They're just bedded there, chewing their cud mid-afternoon. It's about 3 o'clock at this point. Uh, they're about 400 yards out. And uh, at that point, I'm kind of evaluating the situation. And it's a really open area. Uh, I can see them pretty much with a naked eye at that point, which you know leads me to believe they can see me if I'm making any added movement. Um, I didn't really like my chances of trying to call those elk in, especially that point in the day. Um, so what I ultimately decided to do is try to cut the distance as much as I possibly could. And the only way I could think of to do that is just to go extremely slow and keep an eye on all those elk as I went. And so what I did is I took my bow, I held the handle in my left hand, and I used my back bar, which this is another reason I like a back bar. It's kind of a simple reason but I can hold it like a handle and essentially I can put that cam, the top cam in front of my face and it kind of, you know, blurs out my face a little bit. I think at least in my mind, if those elk were to look at me, it's not going to look like a, a human face staring back at him. Cause I've got this big top cam, you know, covering my face. Uh, also I use some, you know, charcoal off a burnt log, kind of black my face out a little bit. Uh, just kind of cut down on any any glimmer or shine that might come off my face. And I just decided I was going to try to spot and stalk these elk uh, for as long as I possibly could and use uh, calls only as a last resort because 
up until that point, we hadn't had a ton of success calling elk. It seemed like anytime we would bugle or cow call, it seemed like it would kind of dampen dampen the, the herd's mood as a whole. It just seemed like they didn't, you know, they probably heard a lot of elk. And I would assume that most over-the-counter elk opportunity units, they have a lot of people call at them. Uh, you know, we knew for a fact that there'd been some other people in there already archery hunting. I had to also assume that there'd been a slew of people in there during the muzzleloader hunt. So... At that point, I'm kind of thinking this all through, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to try to use calls as a very last resort. Uh, So what I did is I just, extremely slow, I took one or two steps at a very slow snail's pace over the next three hours. And, you know, it's painstaking to be that patient, to go that slow. But the good thing is, is that I could see every elk the entire time which allowed me to kind of keep an eye on their behavior, you know, watch to see if they were looking at me and only take steps when they weren't. Or, you know, every now and then you'd have a cow that would get up and she'd be feeding. Anytime those elk are up or feeding, it seems like they're a little bit more relaxed. You know, they've got their head in the shrubs and they're kind of eating. And those are the times when I would take a step and I would wait. I'd take another step and I'd wait take another step, maybe two steps. And I just went extremely, extremely slow over the next three hours. Uh, so that put me at six o'clock. Uh, I still had a really consistent win blowing from them to me out of the South. And at that point I was able to close the distance down to 112 yards. And at that point I had the bull bedded. Uh, he had maybe three or four cows that were bedded below him between me and them, me and him. And uh, a couple other cows that were bedded kind of up and to his left. And at that point, you know, you're that close. That's kind of that magic circle, if you will, where you start thinking like, hey, can I cow call or potentially, you know, bugle this bull out of his bed, maybe get him up and come over to investigate. Um, I had a little bit of a wash between he and I, so I definitely didn't think I could get any closer. And like I said, it was also relatively open uh, field of view between he and I. Um But again, I just decided I'm watching this bull, um, you know, I'm evaluating the behavior. I I know that bulls this time of year are pretty aggressive. Uh, Their herd is their little harem. They kind of look after them, and it's not totally uncommon for a bull to get up and make a loop on his herd just to check his cows, kind of keep them in line or keep them in order. And so I decided at that point I was only, again, going to use a call as a last-ditch effort if those elk got up and they started feeding away from me over the ridge or if they started down the ridge kind of going below me you know if they were looking like they were really going to get out of completely out of range and like nothing was going to happen you know maybe then I could use a an elk call to try to lure him back to check me out so I just kept my uh, calls in my pocket which I can say was a, a test in patience in itself because when you get in that tide on a bull Uh, you want that to happen. You want that bull to come in. You want that experience of calling a bull in. You want to shoot the bull. You want it to be this picture perfect scenario when it comes to archery elk hunting. But better sense told me, just be patient. Just wait it out. I think that bull's going to get up. I think he's going to come down, circle those cows, which should put him within range or close to it. So I just waited. And, you know, maybe five, ten minutes went by. Uh, He did get up, the cows got up, and the cows kind of, as fortune would have it, kind of started feeding closer to me. So they're cutting the distance to me. 
And the bull, like I said, just kind of knowing elk behavior and knowing at this time of year, it's not uncommon for a bull to check his cows. Uh, he beagled a couple times and then he did. He came on a beeline. He just dropped down the hill. He hooked right around the front of those cows. And as luck would have it, uh, when he dropped down that canyon and kind of dropped below me, um, it put him in a perfect spot for a shot. And he ended up being uh, 62 yards. Uh, I had ranged several trees. I'd, ra I'd ranged a down log that he ended up walking right in front of. So I had a good solid range at 62 yards. Uh, I was kind of following him, him along as he was coming through the trees. And he was coming through almost broadside. And when he walked behind a big standing dead tree, I drew my bow. He stepped out, made a couple of steps, and I cow called. And when I cow called, he actually kind of turned uh, where he was quartering away from me, just ever so slightly. His head kind of back looking up towards me. And, uh, you know, the pen settled, uh, shot broke, and it was just one of those shots where when the arrow breaks, you know the result. I watched the arrow the entire way. Uh, I watched that hit him right behind the shoulder, slightly quartering away. And, you know, as soon as the arrow hit, I knew that it was a dead, a dead bull. Um, he kind of jumped a couple of steps, stood there, looked back, didn't really know what had happened. Um, that's one of the things I would add uh, to, to these Matthews bows is they're just so extremely quiet. There were several cows in his herd that never even looked. It was like they hadn't even heard the bow go off. They didn't even look my way. Uh, a couple that were lower between he and I, you know, it kind of picked up on the sound and looked up the hill, but I don't think the whole herd even knew, you know, what had happened. They had no idea that I was even in the vicinity. Uh, the bull then, you could probably probably start to feel that blood pressure drop. He was starting to feel that there was something not quite right, and he kind of took off on a run. Uh, he went down the drainage maybe 80 or 100 yards, and at that point I could definitely see that his legs were getting weak. Uh, he turned to where he was facing uphill. Uh, I could see his back legs getting wider, and it seems like I've seen that before with those bulls. They're trying to keep on their feet as their blood pressure is tanking, and eventually his back legs went out, and, and he just tipped over and died right there. And I would say the entire process from the time the shot broke to the time he died was probably, you know, no more than 40 seconds, I would say. It was a, a quick death. Uh, but I had a had a bull down, and you know I was ecstatic, and uh, and I was able to make my way over to that bull. Uh, I always like to follow the blood trail just to see what the results are of the shot. I was able to follow the blood trail, you know, right to him and found him dead. And he's a great over-the-counter Colorado six-point bull. Um, as I talked to people, so for the the next three days, it took me to pack this bull out and. You know, I don't say this to toot my own horn or anything, but, um, you know, this bull was nine miles one way as the crow flies from my truck. Uh, I was able to break the bull down that night. Uh, Chris and his brother Josh were able and kind enough to come over and meet me. Uh, they boned out quarters while I was pulling quarters off, and I got all the, the meat and bags that night. Uh, the next morning, I told those guys, you know, go keep hunting. You've got two tags. Uh, I'll get this bull out on my own. It's going to take me some time. It's going to suck. But 
days in September are so precious. And if you got a tag in your pocket and you're out elk hunting, you want to be out elk hunting. You don't want to be packing meat. So uh, I'd found success and I knew I could get that bull out on my own. So I sent those guys off hunting the next day and, you know, I wasn't able to link up with them again. Uh, they just continued to, to go out and go hunting. But it did take me another, you know, two and a half, three days to get that bull out. The great thing about it was that it was hitting freezing temperatures at night. Uh, I packed all the meat down into the canyon. I was able to get it into uh, a little pocket of pine on a north-facing slope that was right next to a creek. Uh, I built a little uh, a little platform, if you will, over the top of the creek, so I was able to get the meat up off the ground. I had good airflow, and like I said, I had that water run underneath it. I had the shade of a north-facing slope. And, uh, you know, when I made trips back and forth and I got back to the meat, there was a good layer of frost on that meat every single morning. So it was really cold. Uh, but like I said, in, in hiking in and out of that country day in and day out, getting that meat, uh, I talked to a lot of other hunters and everybody I would talk to would say, you know, how'd you kill that elk? You know, it's so open out here. Um, you know, did you call him in? And if you called him in, how did you do it? Because, you know, we make an elk noise, whether it's a cow call or a bull, those elk can see so far that they look to where they expect to see an elk and they don't see an elk where they see a human and they're gone. And everybody was saying, we just have had not any success calling elk. And, and I can certainly understand that, but pretty much I would divulge to them, you know, the way I did it was just spot and stock and pure patience, just creeping in, you know, as slowly as I possibly could. And then using a uh, cow calls or a bull call is a very last resort. And I'm not saying that that's the only way to kill elk. It certainly isn't. Uh, you can definitely call elk in. And I see people that are very successful every single year at calling elk in. Uh, but this got me thinking about uh, hunting to your strengths. So this is kind of like lesson number two for me. Um, and, and I would tell people, hunt to your strengths. Uh, if you're a very patient person, uh, which I would consider myself patient to a fault almost. Sometimes I'm too patient. I feel like I could be more aggressive at times, but patience is a strength that I have. So whether that is sitting a wallow or sitting a waterhole or spot and stock where it might take me three hours to cover a distance of 300 yards, that's something that I'm relatively good at. I'm quite patient. So I use that to my strength. Uh, I'm not a great elk caller. Uh, I could be way better. I could practice way more. I just, I don't. <laughs> and I, I don't necessarily love, you know, elk calling. I don't love the process of practicing. And I know that probably sounds like a, you know, blasphemy for a guy that loves elk hunting. Uh, but I don't, and I just haven't put the time and effort into it uh, over the years. Uh, I think that you should, and I know that I certainly should, and I could get much better, and it would probably help me be more successful in the elk woods. Uh, but I would tell you, hunt to your strengths. So if you're a good caller, you really like calling, you've practiced at it, you're good, you sound authentic when you're in the woods, you know, use that to your advantage. Use the topography if it's an open area. You know, potentially maybe you can call a bull up and over just the crest of a ridge where you might be able to get a shot. Um, if you're patient like I am, you know, consider the methodology that is, uh, you know, conducive to that style of hunting. You know, whether, like I said, that spot and stock or sitting a water a source or a water hole. 
Uh, if you're a guy that is really physically fit, maybe you spent all off season doing push-ups and setups and running miles and your cardio's through the roof, you know, cover ground, um, you know, use, use the things that you're good at to your advantage, because there's definitely more ways than one to skin a cat. Um, so use that to your advantage. That was kind of lesson number two for me. Uh, and I, I think I've, I think I've known that, but I, I think I would advise people lean into it, lean into the things that you're good at. Uh, if you love shooting your bow and you're a great shot at shooting your bow and you can extend the yardage out to, you know, 60, 70, 80 yards and you shoot every single day and you're confident in that, um, you know, use that to your advantage. If you're great in, in crunch moments and, and you're great at shooting your bow, then, you know, use that. Uh, but yeah, hunt, hunt to your strengths. I think that was a lesson to me that, uh, you don't necessarily have to call an elk in to kill one. Um, you can, you can get it done with a multitude of ways. So hunt to your strengths. Um, like I said, I, uh, I packed that bull out. It took me, you know, another couple of days to get that bull packed out completely. Uh, I got all the meat out eventually on my own. I think I added it up and it ended up being about 45 miles of total hiking to get that bull out. You know, half of that being with a, you know, 80 to a hundred pound pack, which certainly sucks. Um, you know, as I'm hiking in and out of that, I'm constantly thinking, you know, here in three or four days when I get this bull all in the freezer, everything's cut up, you know, after that, I'm going to have to go back to work or be sitting in front of my computer and, you know, answering emails and, you know, doing the things that uh, I do day to day for my job, which certainly I love, but it's not elk hunting. And no matter how much this hurts right now, you know, in three or four days, I'm going to be back doing the same mundane things that I, I do day in and day out. So just embrace the suck and, you know, just do it. And that's what it took. It took me all that effort, but, uh, you know, we've had elk burgers three days this last week and they were phenomenal. Uh, my kids can't get enough of them. So, uh, did the work, had a really successful hunt. Uh, and I look back on September with super fond memories this year, both for, you know, hunting mule deer, uh, with a bow. And then also, uh, this over the counter elk in, in Colorado. Uh, with that, uh, I wanted to dive in kind of the last portion of this podcast. I just wanted to share some gear items. Uh, and this is kind of a third lesson that I would touch on is that, uh, gear, gear is not everything in the woods. It's not uh, methodology. It's not those individual little traits that can help you be successful. But gear unequivocally, in my mind, makes you more confident, more comfortable in the field, which is a big portion of the entire process as a whole. Uh, Good gear gives me confidence. And the more I think about hunting year in and year out, I think confidence is the biggest killer in the woods. Uh, I think if you go out there and you've done all the work, you have the gear, you've done the research, you have the experience, you know, you're, you're hunting to your strength, you know what you're good at, uh, you're going to be confident. And I think confidence is, it's the X factor in bow hunting. I think it is the X factor that gets it done. And I think the people that are successful every single year, I think those are people that are extremely extremely confident. And I think gear is a a portion of that. Uh, so with that, I wanted to touch on some items that, uh, I felt like, you know, gave me confidence this year. They worked extremely well. They made me more comfortable It made me more effective. Some items are just little items that just helped at some portion of the process. 
Uh, so I'm going to dive in and just talk about some of these items. Uh, the first being the Sitka Intercept Pant. So the Sitka Intercept Pant was launched this year. It's the replacement for the Sitka Apex Pant. Uh, the Apex Pant was one of my very favorite hunting pants of all times. It was super quiet. The fit was really, really good. It seemed to be about the right weight for that September time frame of archery elk hunting, and I absolutely love that pant. So I was really eager to try out the Intercept this pant, uh, pant this year. Uh, the Intercept pant has a very similar feel in terms of the material. It is probably a little bit heavier than the original Apex pant. It's probably not quite as quiet as the Apex pant, although I would consider it a really quiet pant. It's probably the most quiet of the options available from Sitka or any company for that matter. Um, it's got some updates that I really like, including the zips uh, that allow you to dump heat when you get too hot. Uh, I was worried that these pants might be a bit too heavy for a September archery elk hunt where you're really active, you're hiking with a heavy pack on your back the whole time. Uh, but what I found, it was a, it was a, exactly what the doctor ordered. It was almost the perfect weight. Uh, like I said, the mornings you would start out in the 30s. It was heavy enough that you weren't cold as you were hiking. It was also uh, light enough that midday when it was starting to get warmer, maybe in the 60s, low 70s, you could up, open up those zips on the sides and it wasn't too hot. Uh, I love the knee pads in these intercept pants. Uh, it's a redesigned new knee pad over the apex pant or the, the knee pads that you could put in like the ascent pant. Um, the material in them just moves. It forms with your knees really, really well. Uh, some people don't like a knee pad because, you know, it makes their knee sweat, they say, <laughs> which I can understand. Uh, but for me, I just like the little advantages that it gives you, uh, including, you know, when you kneel over to tie your boots, it's really great to just drop it down, put your knee in the dirt and not have to worry about it. You know, if you're setting up camp, you can get down on your knees, pound your steaks in. If you're eating dinner at night, uh, where I found it really useful this year is in breaking down a bowl. So as you're on your knees and you're skinning, you're cutting, uh, it was really comfortable to have those knee pads in. And then there's also going to be those situations where you end up on your knees during a calling situation or even spot and stock hunting. In a lot of ways, you might be there for a long time on your knees. So it's nice to have that little extra padding. Um, so those are really kind of the things I like about it. I like the weight of it. It's soft. It's comfortable. Uh, I like the knee pads. I like the side vents to dump some heat. A uh, couple things that maybe uh, I would like to see change. It's not necessarily difference in the pant. It's just that for me, I'm historically like a 33-inch waist. Uh, they used to offer a 33-inch waist in that Apex pant. They no longer do in the intercept, so it's either 32 or 34. Uh, they do not offer a tall version in the 32, which is what I ended up going to, and it fit me really good in the waist. Uh, but they don't have a tall, which is kind of a bummer. Um, I wish they made a 32 tall or, you know, ideally I would love to see them do a 33 tall. That would be my, my favorite option, but, uh, it wasn't a deal breaker by any means. I will say also, I think that that pant fits slightly roomier than the original apex pant or the ascent pant. So it's not quite as a uh, streamlined straight leg fit. If you will, it's got a little bit more room in it. And if I had to 
kind of put it in a box, uh, I would say that the fit is probably somewhere between the mountain pant, which I think is kind of a little bit roomier, uh, and the ascent pant. So it's kind of that in-between fit. And I think it's a great fit for bow hunting. Uh, I never had any issues where I thought that the extra material on the pant legs was making any noise or, or anything like that. So uh, that pant worked awesome. Um, I do wish they made it in a, a lighter color. The pant that I have is the uh, green. It's a deep lichen, they call it, but it's a, almost a kind of a deep foresty green. Uh, I would like to see that available like in a more of a, you know, a lighter green tone, um, you know, or potentially even just a coyote brown, kind of a browner uh, tan color. And that's mostly just aesthetics. But for me, uh, I would prefer a, a lighter colored pant. Uh, they also do make that pant in both the open country, uh, subalp, uh, excuse me, the subalpine and the open country uh, optifade pattern. So check those out. I can't recommend enough. Uh, cost on those is 289 bucks. Uh, total weight on a pair of those is about one, pi one pound, five ounces. So I really, really like that. Um, I'm going to touch on another uh, clothing item that I really like. Uh, this piece came out maybe two years ago, and that's the Sitka Ambient Hoodie. Uh, the ambient hoodie is an, it's an insulation pay, uh, piece. I, I think they call it an active insulation piece. Uh, reason being is that it does tend to move moisture really well. Um, I do find that that ambient hoodie provides warmth when I'm static. So if I'm just sitting and glassing, it's really warm. Uh, and when I'm active, so if I've got my backpack on and I'm doing a lot of hiking in that thing in cool temperatures, whether that's morning or evening, I feel like it moves moisture and it dumps heat well enough that I'm not uncomfortably hot uh, when I'm wearing that in those situations. Uh, that piece has kind of replaced the core heavyweight hoodie for me. Uh, I think it's warmer, it's lighter than the core heavyweight hoodie, and it dries extremely quick. It's got a really uh, soft face fabric that is quiet. And I just find myself using that ambient hoodie more and more specifically on these September high country uh, archery hunts. I just think it's a phenomenal piece. Um, cost on that is going to be 279 bucks. Total weight on it is about 13 ounces. Uh, this brings up something else in my mind that I would like to touch on. And this is another you know, potential lesson that I learned. Uh, when I started in on that bull that I ended up killing, like I said, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon and it was warm. And at that point, the only layer that I had on was my base layer, which is the Sitka Merino 120 layer. It's just a single thin layer Merino hoodie. I had the hood up. Um, that's the only layer I had because it was hot and I had my backpack on and I'm creeping in on that bull and I'm creeping and I'm creeping and it ends it ends up taking me 3 hours like I said to get within you know 112 yards and at that point you know I'm waiting for that bull to make a move down to the cows uh well in that space of time you know the sun is starting to get really low uh the sun sets the temperatures change the wind's blowing and at that point I was cold uh to the point that I was shaking and I've had this happen many times enough that I should know better than this and kind of a lesson to you all is that when you start on a stock uh, the realization that you have to have is that you may start that stock when the temperature is warm and you only need a single layer but by the time you get into range it might be several hours later and the temperature especially in September in the high country it can swing 30 degrees 20 30 degrees 
And, you know, what started out as being really hot, you might be really cold. And at that point, you're, you're shaking, you're cold, and it makes making a shot at that point, especially when you're under the duress of having to make a shot with your bow, it makes it that much more difficult. And, you know, you don't want any added excess noise or movement of trying to pull a layer out of your backpack. So that was a lesson that I learned. Uh, dress for the occasion, if you will. You know, dress for the potential shot that might present itself three hours later when the temperature's 20, 30 degrees cooler. Uh, I wished I'd done that. I wished I'd add that uh, ambient hoodie. Um, I can tell you what I ended up doing. Like I said, I was cold at that point. I was shaking and, you know, teeth kind of chattering. Um, and this is a little tip for you that might help you. Uh, in order to calm myself down as I could kind of start to see that shot starting to present itself, I could kind of see the movement of the cows and I was starting to see the bull get up and I'm, you know, I'm working the situation through my mind. What I ended up doing is breathing exercises. So I started doing four deep breaths in, I would hold it. I would push that out, uh, trying to get my breath, get my, con my control of my breath and my breathing. And the other thing that I did is I started to tense all the muscles in my body. So I would tense my arms, I would tense my thighs and my calves, my back, my stomach muscles, and I would just clench up as hard as I could, just, you know, clenching those muscles and I would hold it for, you know, 30, 40 seconds, a minute, just tightening every muscle in my body and then I would relax it. And that little bit of body heat, just in flexing all the muscles in your body was enough to provide some body heat, calm my body down. I was able to get a whole lot more control in my breathing. I wasn't shaking. And ultimately, I really honestly believe that that was what allowed me to make a really good controlled uh, shot where I wasn't shaking, I wasn't cold, uh, and I wasn't nervous at that point. I'd really calmed myself down prior to that shot presenting itself. So hopefully those are a couple little tips that can can help you guys if you get yourself into that situation. But like I said, dress dress for the occasion that's going to occur, you know, potentially a half day later. A uh, couple other pieces of gear that I wanted to touch on, uh, Go Hunt game bags. Um, we came up with Go Hunt game bags. We, we launched those this year. Uh, there's a lot of game bags on the market. Certainly we thought that we could bring our own touch to those. We could do some things that were a little bit different than some of the other options on the market. And I think that they worked. I think that the changes that we made, the things that we did to our game bags, I think that they were effective. And I think we've produced a really good game bag. Um, those come in two different sets. You can buy them in a deer set or an elk set. Uh, both sets are going to come with four larger bags and then a small bag for loose meat. Uh, I can tell you that for elk, uh, I boned out this bull. Like I said, uh, I did not pack a cape out, so I wasn't packing a cape in a game bag. And I think for me, uh, three of the elk size large game bags were the perfect fit for a boned out bull. I was able to fit a front hind quarter, a front quarter and a hind quarter completely boned out in a bag. And then in the third bag, I was able to put uh, back straps, tenderloins, neck meat, any loose meat in that bag. So three of the large elk size game bags, I was able to fit a full boned out bull. And like I said, that's without the cape. Uh, they fit perfectly within those bags and it made a really nice load for, for packing out. Um, some differences in our game bags, one of them being uh, the main body of the game bag is one continuous piece of material. So there's no bottom seam. 
frame. There's two side panels, and then the main portion of the bag is one contiguous piece of material, kind of like a baseball, if you can imagine what that's like. Uh, we didn't want any seams in the bottom that could potentially give away under a lot of weight. Uh, that worked. Uh, did not have any issues, even like I said, game you know game bags full of meat that were weighing you know 80 up to 100 pounds potentially. Uh, I didn't weigh them, but they definitely were heavy. <laughs> um, uh, another couple couple little design features I found really handy. Uh, they have handles built into them, so it makes it really nice. One person can hold that bag open with the two handles. It makes it really easy to load meat, whether you're loading a quarter or boned out meat. Uh, another little design feature that we put into our game bags, we made them wider at the top than at the bottom. They're kind of narrowed at the bottom, and we did that for a couple of reasons. One being that we wanted it to be easier to load meat. Uh, it can be kind of tricky to load meat in those bags, and so we made them wider at the top. The other reason is we wanted to force uh, the weight of the quarters to kind of stay up further in the bag. Um, you know, just a, a traditional rectangular bag, it seems like because of gravity and the weight of those quarters or boned out meat, it just seems like they want to sink to the bottom. And I think making that a little bit more narrow at the bottom and wider at the top actually kind of kept a lot of the weight higher up in the bag, which made it really nice for carrying on a pack uh, with a load shelf. It kept the load up and I found them really comfortable to carry out. So go hunt game bags, check those out. A total set I think is about one pounds, 2.2 ounces. Cost is going to be about 65 bucks. Uh, and I was really impressed, really happy with the way that those game bags turned out. A uh, couple other items I'd, tuck, I'd touch on. Um, these are items that I think were, you know, difference makers for me, if you will. Uh, those are the UltraView Archery, the button, the thumb button release, and then also the uh, UV slider sight that they just launched recently. Uh, I think that that UV slider sight is really, really well built. Uh, there's no slop in that thing. Uh, it's, it's tight. I mean, there's no added sound, noise. Everything is very functional and easy to use. Uh, the actual slider portion of it, you can cover a lot of ground in that with just one rotation of the knob. The knob is large. It's easy to grasp. It's got a really nice rubber coating on the outside. It's really easy to grab, move up and down. Um, it's got a ton of features that I, I absolutely dig. And I would say first and foremost, the biggest thing is that the, the thing is just really well built. It's solid. It's no rattle, no shake. Uh, everything is just tight in that site, and I really, really like it. I know that it's got a hefty price tag of, you know, 600 bucks, but if you're looking for a new site, I think it's a really good option. Uh, I will say when you buy that site, uh, you get the extra large housing with the four pens. Uh, the center pen in that site is stationary. The top pen and the third pen are both individually able to be adjusted up or down and then it's got a set pin at the bottom that you could kind of use, if, you know, for extended distances if you wanted to. Um, I will say that those pins come in a 0 0.015 and then the bottom pin is a 0 0.010. Um, for my eyes, you know, I'm in my 40s, uh, you know, I've had my retina reattached to my right eye. Uh, my eye is not the best, especially my right eye. So those 15 pins are kind of tough for me to see. Um, which is why I went to the two pin housing, which you can very easily exchange and you can get the two pin housing in a 19 pin. Uh, that pin is, you know, green and red as a reference pen, a second pen. 
Um, I can see those really, really well. Those are bright. I uh, didn't have any issues whatsoever in seeing those. Uh, so that's one little quirk about that. But like I said, most of that is just due to my age and the condition of my, my right eye. It's just not that great. But I really like that sight. Uh, the other thing, the button. So the UV button, thumb button release. Uh, I shot a hinge release for years and years and years. It's pretty much all I've shot since I had a really bad tar- case of target panic back in you know the mid-2000s. Uh, I haven't been able to shoot a trigger release up until the UV button, which I've been using the last couple of years. Uh, the thing that I like about it is that I can hang that thing from my string. So it's got the string keeper that's built into the little hook on it. So I can leave that hooked onto my D loop and I'm then free to use my right hand for ranging or holding a bugle and bugling. Uh, that's the difference of, you know, not having to reach back into my pocket and grab a hand release and then hook it back up to the D loop. So it saves me that added time and movement. Uh, I'm also able to adjust the trigger tension and the trigger travel. Uh, I really like the knob, uh, the button portion of that, that actually activates the release. I feel like I'm able to kind of wrap my thumb around that and the way that the spiral grooves are uh, machined into that knob, it feels like it gives it nice bite. And I feel like I'm able to shoot that release very similarly or almost exactly like my hinge. I can pretty much relax my hand, relax my wrist. Uh, I can use my tension muscles, those rhomboids in the back in my back and just kind of relax, pull through the shot and, and it breaks very similar to my hinge release. Uh, But I now have the added control of a trigger. And like I said, I'm able to hang that from my D-loop. Those releases come in two different materials. So you can get it in either aluminum or a stainless steel. Uh, I prefer the stainless steel, which is heavier. Uh, That release is like 5.6 ounces. So it's pretty heavy in your hand. Uh, Cost on it, again, it's a little pricey for release. But I feel like if you buy good equipment, it's going to give you really good use over years and years. So the cost is $299 on that release. Um, I just really like it. I can't say enough good about it. Uh, I feel like that heavy stainless steel just allows me to relax my hand, relax my wrist. It just, the weight of it, for whatever reason, just feels like I can stay relaxed through the shot. So uh, check out that UV release. Check out the UV slider. I think they've hit home runs with both of those items. Uh, And I really feel like they were, you know, advantageous and a difference maker this year for me in September. A uh, couple other items, and these are just quirky little items, uh, one of them being a uh, Outdoor Edge Grizz saw. So this is just a little handheld saw. It only weighs 5.3 ounces. It's only 28 bucks. Uh, you can get it in the Go Hunt gear shop. Essentially, it's just a little packable saw, and I don't use it on every hunt, uh, but I've used it enough that it always makes its way into my backpack. So I've used it to cut uh, lanes, shooting lanes, if I'm sitting a wallow or a water hole. Uh, I've used it to cut a pole to pitch my tarp if I'm only using one trekking pole. Uh, the thing that I've used it more than anything for is just to skull cap a bull. Um, I know that there are people that love European mounts. Um, I like a European mount, but I also like to ditch the extra weight when I'm packing out a full bull elk on my own. Uh, it's probably going to save me, you know, potentially 10 pounds just by cutting the skull plate out and packing the antlers in the skull plate. Uh, if you are mounting the bull, I would certainly suggest that you skull cap it with a little outdoor edge grizz saw, save you the extra weight, and then just, you know, cape off the hide, pack the cape in a game bag and pack that out separately. Um, 
you know, for people that like Euro mounts, totally get it. I'm, it's not that I'm not one of them. I just don't do it. Typically what I'll do is skull cap the animal, uh, and then, you know, mount it to a piece of barn wood or something like that. Uh, so that little outdoor edge, uh, grizz saw, it always makes its way into my pack. I actually hit the trailhead, uh, on my last load out, I believe I ended up talking to a guy there. He was asking me, how'd you, how'd you cut that skull plate out? And I said, well, I've got this little pack saw and, you know, I gave him my pack saw and hopefully it brought him some good luck and he was able to put that to use. And like I said, it's only 28 bucks. It only weighs five ounces and it's a really nice little, uh, saw to have in your backpack. So maybe not like a difference maker for you overall, but you know, if you're packing an elk out of a hell hole and you're nine miles one way and you want to ditch a little extra weight, it's pretty handy to have and, and be able to skull cap an animal and get that out. A uh, couple more items that I would touch on. Uh, I won't go too deep into these. Uh, we just, we have a ton of questions that we've been asked about this little item. So this is the total peep hip quiver attachment and then also the tight spot five arrow quiver. Uh, I've been a fan of the tight spot five arrow quivers for a really long time. Um, you know, it used to be that their selling point was that they mounted really close to the bow. Uh, it didn't take me too long for shooting a bow with a quiver mounted to the side that realized to realize that I don't really love shooting my bow with a quiver on it. Uh, for several reasons, one being that it's louder. So you got the vibration going through the quiver and the arrows. The other being, I don't really like the way that the bow balances with a full quiver on the right side of my bow it adds extra weight to the bow. Uh, I also do not love the added, uh, wind cell, if you will, for lack of a better word that it adds to your bow. So any kind of wind, you know, it's going to catch your veins, your arrows, the hood on the quiver. It just adds that much more movement to your bow if you've got a little bit of a breeze or wind blowing. So, you know, three factors essentially that I don't love about shooting a quiver on my bow. Uh, but I do love tight spot quivers, and you got to carry your, your arrows somehow. That's where that little total peep hip quiver attachment comes in. It's a simple little plastic uh, polymer attachment. You can thread it onto the belt of your pack, or you can put your belt, your pants belt, through it and it's got a little dovetail receiver that comes with your tight spot quiver you can actually buy a couple of those and you can put one on your bow if you want to carry your quiver on your bow sometimes you can mount the other dovetail little receiver for those tight spots onto the total peep hip quiver attachment and you could go back and forth uh, i don't do that i just put one on the total peep hip quiver attachment and it's a very simple locking lever you just slide the dovetail over it you cinch it down and it's secure and good to go uh, cost on a total peep hip quiver attachment, is 59 bucks. Um, you know, a tight spot quiver, 159 bucks. They do have a new version called the tight spot five arrow light, I believe, which is a little bit lighter weight. It's got some carbon fiber built into that. Uh, the other thing I would say about tight spot quivers, um, you know, Kelly Diaz, I think is D I E S S. I apologize if I didn't spell your name right. And I hope you don't mind me mentioning you, but just a solid dude. One of my very favorite guys in the archery industry. Anytime I run into him, he's got a big smile. He's just such a friendly guy and just seems like an awesome, awesome dude. So I love supporting those guys over at tight spot. Uh, so check that out. If you guys are looking for a way to carry your quivers on a hip belt or on your belt, and you don't want to carry it on your bow, check out the Total Peep Hip Quiver. Um, it's my go-to. I don't see any other reason to change to anything else. It just is my preferred method. Uh, it's very easy and quick to load your arrows from that as well, where it's mounted right on your right hip. 
another item that I would add, uh, the Peaks Backcountry Duo headlamp. Um, I love this headlamp. I think it's the best headlamp on, on the market that I've found. Uh, you know, more recently, I've seen a lot of talk. I've heard there's some threads on forums that people are saying that it's essentially, you know, a knockoff or it's the same headlamp that you could buy overseas uh, for a lot cheaper. Um, the body itself is the same, looks the same. Uh, it is aluminum, which I like. Uh, but the guts of this headlamp are definitely different because the battery life is awesome. Uh, the brightness is really good. It maintains its brightness over a lot longer period. It's got a lot of features that I really like, including a very bright white light, which they advertise at a thousand lumens. Uh, certainly that's going to dim if you leave that on over, you know, significant amount of time. But, uh, you know, I would, I would suggest that with my use of this headlamp, I would say you probably get seven hours of a very bright light, even on the highest setting that is usable good light. You can adjust that uh, to three different modes of brightness for the white light if you want to you know, prolong the battery life of that. Um, it also has a bright red light, which is one of the main reasons I love this headlamp. Uh, I hike a lot with red light when I'm at camp at night and I'm making camp and I'm trying to keep a low profile. I like the red light. Uh, they say that animals cannot perceive or see red light. Uh, I don't know if that's the truth, but that's what I'm told, and I buy into it. So I use that red light a lot. It also has three settings of brightness for that red light. So you can prolong, again, life of your, your battery if you want. And I've never tested it, but they say that you could get as much as 55 to 65 hours on the low settings of either the white light or the red light. Uh, the red light does take less battery. Uh, so another reason why I like to use that red light. Uh, I will say that in using this headlamp, I have not had to recharge it on a hunt. So, you know, I was out hunting and packing, you know, and I wasn't hiking hours and hours at night, you know, maybe for an hour at night before I go to bed, maybe for a half hour, 45 minutes while I was getting my camp together in the morning and eating some breakfast. Uh, I wasn't doing a ton of night hiking, but you know, in an eight day hunt, no issues whatsoever on one charge of the battery. Uh, it also has a locking mechanism that I really like. So when I lock that and I put it in my backpack in the morning, when it gets light, I'm not worried at all that that thing's going to automatically turn on and that it's going to be dead when I dig it out of my pack that night when I need it. So that's just another reason that I really like that headlamp. Uh, total cost, 90 bucks. So it's 90 bucks. It's a little expensive for a headlamp. It is a little bit heavier. It's 4.3 ounces. They're definitely lighter headlamps on the market. They're cheaper headlamps on the market, but this one does have a really long battery life. It's very bright, has a bright red light, has a locking mechanism, uh, and it's aluminum, which I really like. Uh, it does have a couple of quirks about it that I'm not necessarily in love with, one of them being the plastic piece that the actual headlamp itself fits into that kind of links it or secures it to the elastic headband. Uh, I would like to see them beef that up. I have had one of the little prongs that uh, go through the plastic, or excuse me, the elastic headband break. Uh, I was able to fix that. I just took some Luco tape and wrapped it around the plastic uh, bracket and the elastic headband, secured it, still use that headlamp, no issues whatsoever. 
but I would like to see them beef up or fix that little plastic piece between the elastic he uh, headband and then the actual headlamp itself. Uh, also, just the elastic headband. It's a pretty basic elastic headband. It's comfortable, but it's not like you know, there, there are better options on the market as far as the headbands that go. Uh, around your head and then also just the adjustability of that I'd love to see that tightened up a little bit but you know not huge differences and definitely not deal breakers when it comes to that headlamp I absolutely love it so check that out Peaks Backcountry Duo headlamp uh, I think it's the best headlamp on the market for hunters a uh, couple more items I'm going to throw at you um, the Peak Refuel Homestyle Chicken and Rice uh, freeze-dried meal there's a lot of days when you're out hunting where dinner is probably the best part of your day. Maybe hunting just has not gone your, gone your way that day. And I really look forward to a hot meal at night. And in my opinion, the chicken and rice from Peak Refuel is hands down the best. I haven't talked to anybody that's tried that meal that doesn't like it. Everybody looks forward to that meal at night. Uh, total cost on that's a little expensive, so it's $13.99. But when you compare that to you know, a burger from Culver's, which is what I gorged myself on, on the way home, you know, a double, double burger from Culver's with a, you know, peanut butter cookie dough shake and fries. I mean, I was into that like 18 bucks. So, um, you know, I, I definitely lost some calories and lost some weight. So I gorged myself a little bit on the way home, but you know, 13.99 a bag, you get 740 calories in that bag. And, you know, one meal weighs five ounces, five and a half ounces or so. So not too bad. And like I said, there's a lot of days when the best part of your day is a hot meal. And I cannot recommend that peak refuel homestyle rice and chicken. It's my go-to. And I typically save that for, you know, hard days when, when it hasn't gone my way, or if I'm celebrating, things have gone my way and I want to have a really good hearty meal. Uh, I really like that one. Uh, I'm going to throw out you just some honorable mentions. These are just other products that I used this year that I really liked. I won't go into deep depths. Uh, the Go Hunt Stratus hat. So this is the Go Hunt Stratus hat. I got it on my head right now. I don't know if you see that in the video, but um, it's a five panel uh, runner's style hat. So it's got perforated holes in the side. It's got a bungee in the back that you can send just to get a good fit. It's low profile. It breathes really, really well. It's super lightweight. Uh, and for me, it's my favorite hunting hat by far. It's my favorite running hat, my favorite hunting hat. Uh, it's not got huge logos or anything. You just got a simple go hunt logo here on the left side, uh, of the front facing panel. Um, you know, Neville, <laughs> Neville says that I look like a, a biker on the tour de France when I wear it. That's what it reminds me of, which, you know, it's not probably not the look that I'm, I'm hoping for or going for, but I will tell you it's hands down my very favorite uh most comfortable hunting hat so check out the go hunt stratus hat a uh, couple other items the hanwag macro pro boots uh, i had a pair of zamberlin sierra boots which i had been wearing and breaking them in uh, they were probably a little bit too flexible for the type of hunt that i was going into um, this is pretty steep rocky terrain and uh you know, I had that boot boot as well, and I've typically liked Hanwag boots over the years. They seem to fit my foot really well. Uh, just to give you guys reference, if you've got a similar foot profile, uh, I wear a size 11. I wear a medium width. Uh, I've got narrow heels, 
which is probably important to note that these Houndwalk boots, I feel like they lock my heel in place. I feel like they have a good heel pocket. Normally, if I get blisters on my feet, it's on my heels from the heel rubbing up and down. Uh, I have had not had that issue with Houndwalk boots. Uh, so if you've got kind of a medium to skinny foot, I would say, you know, medium arches and, you know, potentially a narrow heel, you know, check out Hanwag boots. Cause like I said, I've had really good luck with those. No hot spots whatsoever. Uh, that macro pro boot has a relatively stiff sole, which was good for this style of hunting because I was covering a lot of miles with a very heavy pack on. Uh, it gave me very good ankle support. Didn't have any issues twisting my ankle. One little tweak, but that's not totally uncommon. Normally I would have probably 10 or 15 in a hunt that long. Uh, but no issues with my ankles. It gave me the support that I needed that my calves and my legs were not sore throughout the day because I was there was too much flex in them. It gave me good stability both uh, side hill and going uphill and downhill. Uh, relatively lightweight for a boot of that nature. Uh, I like the height of it. Uh, they do come available in a couple of different colors. You got like a nice charcoal gray or the boot that I used is kind of a teal blue color with uh, lime green laces. And I got those, you know, and talking with Jared in our Go Hunt gear shop, I said, you know, which one of these is, you know, the poor seller, if you will. And I figured it would be the blue. Uh, so understanding that we may potentially sell less of those, I decided to go ahead and get the blue and, you know, leave the, the nice gray color for good customers out there that might be shopping but check out that Macra Pro boot uh, if you're looking for a you know relatively stiff you know supportive hardy boot for mountain style hunting uh, I really liked it uh, last item I'm going to throw at you uh, I've had a lot of questions lately about sleeping pads people asking what's the most comfortable sleeping pad um, and there's a lot of options on the market that are thick there's some pads you know whether it's Big Agnes or Sea to Summit you know, they're making three and a half, four inch thick pads, which are lush, you know, plush pads, very roomy. Um, I would tell you that in my opinion, uh, although they may not be the most comfortable, I don't find them uncomfortable by any means. I sleep really well. Hands down, my preferred sleeping pad is the Thermarest Neo Air X Lite sleeping pad. I don't think that there's a better sleeping pad out there. Uh, the R value is exceptional. It's 4.5, which is very good. It's more than enough for your September, October timeframes, maybe even take you into that late season if you paired that with a warm sleeping bag. Uh, it is three inches thick. Uh, the large size on that, which is a 77 by 25 inch pad, is only one pound, one ounce. Uh, I like the width of it. So 25 inches, I don't have any issues with my shoulders or my arms kind of falling off. And I also like that I get the full 77 inches because I am a little bit taller. Uh, even if you're not, I think it's great. You know, if you've got plenty of room for your head, your pillow, you know, and your heels at the end. So, and there's, you're really not uh, sacrificing anything by buying a large because it's still only a pound, you know, one pound, one ounce, uh, that sleeping pad. The thing I like about it more than anything is the durability. I've had big Agnes pads. I've had uh, climate pads. I'm trying to think Nemo. Um, I've had several pads over the years and it seems like inevitably, you know, after a season or two of use, it seems like I get some leaks. I might get a puncture or a hole in them. Sometimes you can fix them and, you know, find it and fix it. Sometimes you can't. Uh, these pads have been really durable for me. So I think I'm going on nine years with the same pad and they, they do have a newer model uh, now. Uh, but I've had really, really good luck with those as far as them being very durable. 
So check that out. If you're looking for a sleeping pad, my opinion, hands down on the market, the very best pad, self-inflating, of course, it might take you a few minutes to blow that thing up, but uh, it's really tough to beat that Thermarest Neo Air X Lite sleeping pad. Uh, so those are kind of my gear choices. Like I said, my lessons learned. Uh, sight in your bow before you leave. Double check it when you get to the trailhead. Uh, two, hunt to your strengths. You know, figure out what you're good at and hunt to that strength. Uh, there's definitely more than one way to kill an elk. You can kill an elk by spot and stock. You can kill it by sitting a water hole or a wallow. You can call elk in and kill elk. Inevitably, it'd be great if you could do all three and you did all three equally well if you had, you know, just a complete kit. And I think a lot of guys do. I think that's why they're successful. But, you know, if you're not good at one thing and you're really good at another thing, hunt to your strengths. Uh, third lesson, uh, prep for a stock in terms of your layering systems. Make sure that you got all the layers that you need when you leave on a stock. If weather temperatures change by the time you get to that animal, Make sure that you're prepared. Uh, if you do get yourself in a situation where you're kind of cold, um, there's exercises you can use. Like I said, for me, breathing exercises and then also just tensing my muscles, just tensing them, holding it and relaxing it and doing that over a period of you know, 10, 15 minutes really calmed my heart rate down, put body heat back in my system and definitely gave me uh, enough confidence to feel really good about the shot. And then lastly, uh, gear, lesson number, you know, lesson number four, I guess it would be gear builds confidence. Good gear makes a difference unequivocally. So get good gear. Uh, if you got questions about any of the gear that I mentioned here, you know, reach out. Uh, that's one thing I would love it if you guys would like, subscribe, leave me feedback, leave me, you know, five stars. That would really help me as far as, you know, promoting the podcast and getting it out to more ears and more listeners. Uh, so with that, I'm going to leave it. Uh, I'll be back uh, here in two weeks with a guest, uh, but I appreciate you guys listening. Like I said, use that promo code GAMETRAIL, sign up for an insider account or a MAPS membership, and you know, once again, get to your local pro shop, shoot a Matthews bows. They make phenomenal bows. So with that, you guys, good luck in October, and I'll catch you next time. Thank you.